I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have been given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned and heard about Christ. You were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your, own, your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthful to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands. They may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ Jesus forgave you. Now, if you would just flip over, maybe a page or two, Ephesians chapter one, or Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse one. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were, once dark, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the, will, the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you remain standing just for one more moment, just one more moment. 
So may we be good hearers and better doers. May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. And may we follow Jesus well. Amen. You may be seated. Mark Driscoll. Bill Hybels. Ravi Zacharias. Carl Lentz. All of these men were following Jesus. They were pastors. They had ministries that with no exaggeration impacted millions of people. And each of these men had some sort of moral failure or power abuse that wounded countless. People who have a hard time trusting or praying or being part of Jesus' family because a person who was supposed to be like Jesus had some major areas that they were not like him. And it's not just some big name pastors out there. I could tell you about pastors you probably have never heard about, but the damage has been done. I know because I've sat in the car with hurting and disillusioned friends as they tried to make sense of things. I doubt I'll forget the ways that pastors I was close to wronged me. But if we're honest, it's not only pastors in the pulpits, it's, not, it's actually us also in the pews. It's not that group of Christians over there, it's followers of Jesus here too. It's me and it's you. If you follow Jesus long enough, you'll be wronged by someone in his family because as it was said, the line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. We followers of Jesus seem to actually be pretty good at something, at making a mess of things and leaving communities as collateral Non-rhetorical question, uh, has anyone experienced this? And does anyone want it to end? It's urgent that we fix this because there's so much at stake. Think about it. People coming into relationship with Jesus, real life and healing and restoration to those who need it. So why does this keep happening? What is it with my heart and yours that causes us to make a mess of things? Well, at the risk of being simplistic, Paul let the Ephesians in on the source of a problem. Chapter 4, verse 17. I tell you this and insist in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Paul is being a little more blunt than most of us probably enjoy. He identifies a cancer in the church and in you. He pleads for these Jesus followers to stop living like the world. Now, a not-too-bad author uh, wants to find the world as this, a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Not too bad, John Mark. All right. I see you. Now, I can tell you from my own struggles and my own sorrows, though, that many followers of Jesus, they get out of the world, but they never actually get the world out of them. It's like from the eight years old to the 80 year old. Many of us have gotten out of the world, but many haven't gotten the world out of us. And this isn't new. It's always been a temptation for God's people from their genesis. Listen, God delivered people from their oppression and slavery. They're rescued, they're his people. And yet the place where they get tripped up isn't the miracle of deliverance, but the mundane of daily life. The trusting and the following and the becoming a new sort of people, the daily things, the small things, That's where God's people get so messed up. What trips us up is the mundane, the slow and subtle lure of the flesh, spiritual evil, and the world. They were delivered, but then 
led astray by the gods of Egypt, Canaan, Babylon, Rome, Ephesus, or for us, the world. We have a hard time getting the world out of us, a hard time giving up what we were rescued from. It's why the New Testament repeatedly instructs us to take off the old humanity and put on the new. Just read Ephesians 4 or Colossians 3, James 1, 1 Peter 2, just to see. One of my favorite ones is Romans 12, 1 through 2. It always stuck with me as a kid. It says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Paul says, don't conform, don't walk as the Gentiles do. The world, it's forming you into something, but God wants to transform you into something so much better. Now think about who Paul says this to. He says this, and he says these words to followers of Jesus in Ephesus, a city like ours, a people who've already received God's gift of rescue, a people who are being made into a new family, a people who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul already told them, and if you've been here for the last weeks, you've heard these things, that they've been adopted into the family of God, recipients of an inheritance, freed from the power of the world, rescued from having to live under the tyranny of the flesh, seated with Christ above principalities, powers, rulers, and the demonic, Mm. filled and sealed with the Spirit, created for good works, brought into a whole new family of Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, reconciled to one another, and called to live out vocation with Jesus. This is who the people of God are. This is who we are now. And yet, the major temptation for us is to live as the world does. It's a temptation for us to think that Christianity can be salvation without spiritual formation. So how do we avoid getting caught in this trap? Well, Paul says to change how we think, and then he immediately says different ways that we should behave. Because when Paul talks about information, or when Paul talks about formation, he doesn't separate thinking from doing. Paul is describing what we've been talking about in our community for years now. Information alone does not produce transformation. We need to practice the way of Jesus. To get Jesus' teachings from our minds into our bodies, we need to practice the way in community and reflect on our practice as a community. Basically, to summarize it, Paul is saying in verse 17, do not live like the Gentiles because that is not who you are anymore. You're new. So change your thinking, and then verse 20 through 24, by learning a new way of living. Paul doesn't want us to get caught in the trap, so he gives us a list of no's and yeses. Like, anyone listen to Destiny's Child growing up? No, for real, yeah, yeah? Then you're like, it's that song, you'll be saying no, 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 when really it's a... All right, you'll be saying no, no, no. No, okay, no, all right, I tried, I tried. Trey, I tried, I tried. Bethany? I tried. Some no's, some yeses. My hope is that we hear the scripture and we'd be curious about what the spirit wants to highlight to each of us individually and as a whole. So are you ready? All right, buckle up. Chapter four, verse 25. Put off lying. Let's go. Lying is about living out of step with reality. A friend of mine, he recently challenged me in this. He said, Christian, never tell a lie. And by that, I mean never deceive. Never hide, ignore, manipulate, exaggerate, or diminish. Yeah, I'll just let that sit for a moment. That challenge has been haunting me. It's causing me to notice all the little ways that I don't fully embody this yet. 
No to lying. And then here's the yes. Speak truthfully with your neighbor because we are members of one another. Use your words to create life and reveal reality in love, even when it's uncomfortable. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Now, this isn't saying never be angry. It's not denial or stuffing. Anger is actually the proper response to evil or injustice, which is why the scripture says that God is slow to anger. Bethany reminded me of the other day that the enemy likes to whisper and let anger fester, which easily deforms it into vengeance. And as we assume the role of God in our relationships or in our world, anger can give us a distorted sense of power when we, want, when we feel powerless or violated. Unhealthy anger can take various shapes, gossip, canceling, distancing yourself, superiority, withdrawal, legalism, critique, unforgiveness. Paul says, watch your anger, verse 27, don't give the accuser or slanderer a foothold by holding on to anger. He's saying you have an enemy and anger can give him a doorway. Don't give him access. Paul said to followers of Jesus in Corinth, dealing with relational issues, to stand the test and be obedient by forgiving in order that Satan may not outwit us for we are not unaware of the enemy's schemes. Instead of stoking anger, God's people are supposed to let their anger burn out at the end of each day. Jesus commands his disciples to be proactive about relational and communal issues. When he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave. If you remember, leave. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. But also, Jesus says, if your brother or, sin, or sister sins against you, go. Point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Anger is such a common trap that Jesus covers both bases. When they sin against you, go talk to them. And when you sin against them, go talk to them. Make sure anger burns out. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Paul's pretty straightforward here, so I'll just make one comment. I do get that there can be a felt complexity around stealing in societies where some barely get by and others have extreme access which is why Jesus' vision for the family of God is so stinking compelling. Imagine us becoming this sort of people. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. That's compelling. In this family, no to stealing and yes to working so that you may have something to give to others in need. Verse 29, and don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Remember Jesus' words, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth is an indicator of the heart. So Paul is talking about speech that is worthless, bad or rotting. It's like that fruit that sat on your calendar way too long. The, stuff, the bananas I get from Trader Joe's, I'm like, I turn around and they expire. It's crazy. Rotten and spreading decay to anything it touches. No to that garbage and yes to what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. There's that famous line. Have you ever heard it before? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's actually Paul quoting Isaiah 63. Here, Isaiah retells the story of God's people. They were saved by God, but they kept rejecting him by living as the other nations did. God didn't abandon his people, yet he also gave generations up to their own self-destruction, and God was grieved. 
And reflecting on what it means to grieve God has actually been like challenging me the past few weeks. I used to think of uh, grieving the spirit as basically like committing a list of sins. But I think Paul reveals it to be so much more. Paul's aim in Ephesians, and I think we've almost said this every week, is to form a community, not just individuals. So everything he's listed so far, including grieving the spirit, is not just about committing specific sins as an individual. Grieving the spirit is about living in a way that destroys the community that God is building. God cares about people. His people. And he's saddened when we cause damage to his family. The theologian Peter O'Brien put it this way, anything incompatible with the unity or purity of the church is inconsistent with the spirit's own nature and therefore grieves him. Paul is not talking about sin, or Paul is talking about sin's impact to the family, not just the individual, which actually kind of goes against how we as Westerners normally conceive of the world in general, let alone sin, right? Like, of course, individual sin, it's a problem, but it's not just a problem for you. It's a problem for us. If the scripture is telling the truth, then we're more connected than we realize, and our actions actually impact each other. I'm actually not the center of the story, and my life isn't the center of the universe. Crazy, right? But isn't that how we so easily think? Like, reflect on lying for a moment. It's inherently, lying is inherently self-preserving and self-centered. Even if it's a lie to not hurt someone, it's still a form of avoiding your own discomfort with the relational tension. Stealing, similar to lying, comes from being absorbed by and committed to my own interests rather than the interests of others. It sees myself as the center of the story. My needs come first. Sinful anger is often about being more committed to things going the certain way that I envision them, even at the expense of missing how my actions and emotions impact others. It's easier to hold anger at another when your life is the, when, when life is your story and you're the main character. Anything or anyone that infringes upon your desires, that becomes an antagonist. It needs to be getting rid of. What about rotten speech? The world often uses words at best to build up the self and at worst to tear others down. Jesus' family holds such a high view of words though. That, we, that thoughts and words and our heart, we see those things in the aim of speech as an opportunity to be generous and proactively build others up. Lying, anger, stealing, and speech, they can wound community. Your actions don't just impact you. That is what Paul is getting at. What you do matters spiritually, relationally, communally, missionally, and what you do has an impact on what God is doing among us. So don't grieve the spirit by destroying what God is building, community. Verse 34, get rid of bitterness, anger, wrath, blasphemy, and wickedness. These aren't just actions. Notice that these are also ways of interacting with people that erode community. They're attitudes that belong to the old way of being human. So instead, be kind. Simple enough. Be kind, compassionate, forgiving one another. Those are the postures, by the way, that a community who knows that they will have problems have to put on. Paul isn't surprised by conflict and tension. He actually expects it. And in short, he says, interact with one another as Jesus has interacted with you. Chapter five, verse three. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Now, I am sure that sexual immorality was the topic you all woke up excited to hear about, just hoping, like, oh, I pray he teaches on sexual immorality today. Like, anybody else without you? No, not me. So let me admit that uh, sex, it's only one of the things that Paul lists off. 
But like the Ephesians with their goddess of fertility, sex is a power that so many have given themselves over to. The world's view of sex has done a number on our city. Have you seen that? And it can really damage community. So let's just take a moment and give the topic some attention. Sexual immorality is the scripture's shorthand for all sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and woman, husband and wife. It can be sleeping around, cheating or porn, or it can also be objectifying others, lust, or even living for sex appeal. It's even using sex in marriage as a tool for anything other than relational commitment, procreation, or giving love. So Paul says, stop using sex for anything outside of Jesus' vision for it. To which some of you may be thinking, okay, I'm with you on no lying, no anger or stealing, but who are you to say what I should or shouldn't do in terms of sex? Why should I listen to an old book's traditional views of sex? To which I just kindly ask back, why listen to historically new thinkers' view on sex? Most of what our society thinks about sex isn't original. It's not enlightened, nor is it even proven true. It's the byproduct of thinking from philosophers like Rousseau, Descartes, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. Just listen to one of Freud's thoughts. Man's discovery that sexual love afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction, and in fact provided him with the prototype of all happiness, must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life all along the path of sexual relations, and that he should make genital erotism the central point of his life. Before you entrust yourself to people like Freud, just why don't you search how their lives went and see if it's really compelling. Actually do it. Just see if it's actually a compelling way to live. So secular society's moral framework is basically life is all about maxing an individual happiness and to be happy, you must be true to yourself and live out your authentic inward desires, especially your sexual desires. But who's to say that my authentic self is actually good? Anyone who is married probably just laughed. <laughs> or that all the desires in me are actually good. What about the authentic desires of those who misuse power or sex? How do you know that being true to yourself will actually lead to fulfillment or satisfy the longings of the human soul, let alone bring out human flourishing? To listen to Jesus' vision for sex may sound close-minded to some, but I actually think the secular vision for sex is close-minded. Every major world religion and most cultures seem to stand in line with Jesus on the topic of sex. So the invite here is actually to be open-minded. Be open-minded to what Jesus has to say about sex. Scripture has a robust and dignifying vision for sex, not because it sees sex as dirty or because it sees pleasure as bad. Jesus has a vision of sex because he made sexual desire good. One more time, he made it good. So, that, so good that you can't use it any old way. For followers of Jesus, sex, sex is such a good and powerful gift from God that it needs a container, like a fire in a fireplace. And I can tell you from experience that Jesus' restrictions to sex don't choke out its vibrancy. They choke out insecurity, misuse, and wounding, allowing it to flourish. Verse three, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greedy desire. Sex and greed? Yep, we're just like going for it today. Jesus, he's not only after outward behavior, he's after inward heart postures that spur on the behavior. 
Now, a synonym for greed is covetousness, the last commandment, if you know the 10. Coveting is about desiring, chasing after, or giving yourself over to what you don't have, but what you think you need in order to be happy, which actually makes sense of why Paul will connect sexual immorality to coveting and greed. Sexual immorality is almost always about chasing a deep-seated desire to be happy, connected, satisfied, and whole. That's what you're looking for. But are you looking in the right place? Actually, ask yourself, are you looking in the right place? To covet is to look and see that something is pleasing or desirable. To think something may satisfy you, which typically leads to grasping, like taking a piece of fruit off a tree in a garden. But while the world tells us to live into our desires, what it doesn't tell us is that we don't just want our desires, our desires want us. Verse four, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Paul takes a turn back to how we talk. Let your mouth be filled with gratitude, seeing all of life not as a thing to exploit or moments to manipulate, but as a gift from God. And then comes everyone's favorite life verse, verse five. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partaker or partners with them. I know that's some of your life verse, right? Like, it's on your wall in the nice calligraphy above the kitchen. No one inherits the king. Yeah, I get it. To keep it short, I don't think that Paul is saying anyone who has committed any of these acts has no part in the kingdom. But rather, anyone who gives themselves over to becoming these sort of people has no part in the kingdom which should give us a good fear, like a holy fear, because what we do does shape who we become. And there's a, the line between doing and becoming gets pretty thin real quickly. So be mindful of what you give yourself over to. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, the language of giving yourself over should sound familiar. It's the language of wrath. I won't spend much time explaining it today. The podcast is available if you want to go back. But here's the Cliff Notes version. Wrath is not about God being capricious, arbitrary, or unpredictable. Wrath is not God striking people with lightning bolts or locking them in a never-ending torture chamber. Wrath is God giving people whom he loves over to whatever they desire, even if it's, their own, even if it's not him. Paul talks about wrath. God giving people over in Ephesians 2, and then again in Ephesians 4, here's what he says about it. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. What Paul is doing is he's describing a loving God who gives people over to whatever they give themselves over to. God honors people's decisions. Then, Paul says, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. Many scholars, such as N.T. Wright or F.F. Bruce, they note that whenever Paul, I don't know why they all have like two consonants, it's kind of weird. It's like, to be a scholar, two consonants. N.T. Wright or F.F. Bruce, they note whenever Paul uses the language of kingdom of Christ, he's talking about the present rule of Jesus. And when he uses the language of kingdom of God, he's talking about the future, when Jesus hands everything over back to God. The point for us is that there are present and future implications to what we give ourselves over to. Both now and in the future, God will honor what you give yourself over to, even if it's not him. But what interests me most is how Paul sums it all up. Verse five, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. Idolatry, 
Remember the second of the Ten Commandments? It means being a worshiper of other gods. It's about what we put at the center of our lives. It's about going after and serving other gods, even unknowingly. Do you see what Paul's saying here? This is the root of everything else. The sin beneath the sin is actually idolatry. Everything else is like the tip of the iceberg. Beneath the water is the thing that's harder to spot. If you're not diligently looking, it will make you sink. Idolatry is the hidden cancer that's hard to detect, but it's there. For example, take sexual immorality. Paul is saying that below the surface, there is an idol. You don't just have sexual desire, you lust after it. Interesting that the New Testament interchanges the words lust, desire, and passions. Picking up on this, the intellectual Tim Keller observed that lust isn't always about wanting bad things. It's also about wanting things too badly. It's about an over-desire or a disordered desire. The problem isn't that your desires are always bad. Sometimes they are. But the problem is that you want your desires too badly. A good thing easily becomes a god, an idol, or even in more popular language, an attachment. Things we think we need to be happy, connected, satisfied, or whole. We have to have comfort, safety, or status, so we lie. We have to self-preserve, so we steal. We have to have outcomes go a certain way, so we're angry. We have to be sexually fulfilled, so we live into our disordered desires. Almost anything can become an idol, career, Status, community, politics, approval, comfort, pleasure, power, moralism, control, education, appearance, affection, nation, family, stability, security, intelligence, autonomy, serving, safety, justice, sex, ethnicity, happiness, or maybe the hardest one to see of all, the self. It's become an attachment, an idol. It's possibly good things, but in the wrong place, and it is robbing you. It's robbing us. Do you want to know what might be the worst thing about idols? They overpromise and they underdeliver. Have you experienced that? They take more than they offer and they leave you wanting. That's why the person who made money has to make more, or the person who got successful has to another ladder to climb. It's why the person who is angry can't let go, or the person who lost weight has to keep on losing. What is it for you? For me, it can be preaching. Ironic, right? It manifests when a bad sermon deflates me or a good sermon causes angst because I have to keep living up to it again and again and again. Good desires can so quickly become God's. David Foster Wallace, who was not a follower of Jesus, he poignantly addressed the issue of idols. He said, worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. You're out of the world, but if you examine your own heart, a little bit of the world may still be in you. There are worldly idols and attachments below the surface, and it's undoing you and destroying community. But you don't have to serve them. 
For you were once darkness, but now you are not light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Notice how Paul doesn't say that you were once in darkness and now are in the light. He says that you were once darkness and now are light. This is about your identity. He's saying this way of living is out of step with your new nature. This isn't you anymore. It doesn't fit. Paul wants you to become who you really are in Christ. But getting rid of the old way of being human, getting rid of our idols and attachments, it's hard. Has anyone else experienced that? Like you make progress on one and then realize there's another and it can feel like a game of whack-a-mole. Like there's just another one underneath the surface waiting to pop out. So how do we put on the new woman or the new man? How do we do it and not give up? Well, actually it was in the middle of our text today in chapter five. Did you see it? Chapter five, verse one. Therefore, follow God's example and walk in the way of love. Four weeks ago, I told you to remember that word, walk. I did, I told you, remember it. And here it is again. Paul is obsessed with walking. The Greek word is peripatero. And the word, it's like expansive. It means to walk, to live, behave, lead, act, or practice. I think that's the key for us. We need practice. Maybe think of your life right now as practicing. You're practicing kingdom living and kingdom life. You're practicing a whole new way to be human. You may not be great yet, but you're learning. And as my band teacher, Mr. Weems, used to tell me, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. Or as we've said here, spiritual formation isn't about trying hard, it's about training hard. We put in effort and then just walk the long obedience in the same direction. Paul says, 4 verse 17, do not practice as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Instead, practice in the way of love as dearly loved children, following God's example, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or as we like to say here, be like Jesus and become like Jesus. Verse 15, be careful how you practice, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to reckless living. Instead, be filled by the Spirit. Being drunk is a way in which Paul says to stop living like the world. Being drunk, it leads to what some translations call debauchery, which basically just means wild or reckless living. It's walking recklessly, and it leads to a ton of stuff leaking out. Most often the things that Paul mentioned before, rotten speech, fits of rage, anger, lying, stealing, or sexual immorality. Instead of wine, be filled by the Spirit. Think of the contrast. Alcohol gives in a false way what the Spirit gives in a true way. Tyler and I, we were talking about this the other day. If you drink a lot, you begin to feel comfortable in your own skin. Anxieties and sadness, they get numbed, but it all comes back when the alcohol wears off. And then you need more alcohol to get back to that same place again. This is how we use attachments. And maybe I should say, this is how attachments use us. Or for me, it can be going to the gym in the morning. Working out, it's a great way for me to diffuse angst and clear my mind. But honestly, I can easily go to the gym rather than the spirit to not feel anxious. And then I have to go again and again and again every morning just to mitigate what the Spirit wants to actually heal. I can bring my angst to the Spirit and receive in a lasting way what I'm looking for often in a quick fix. So Paul tells Christians who already have the Spirit to be filled and keep being filled. The verb is in the present continual sense, keep getting filled. Several times the scripture says to be filled with the spirit, the spirit being what God's people are filled with. But many scholars note that here, Paul isn't saying be filled with the spirit. 
but be filled by the Spirit. And truthfully, I'm not fully sure what that all means, but it's interesting that the Spirit here is not only what we are filled with, but also whom we are filled by. Then Paul ends, verse 19, the evidence of the Spirit filling your life is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Ben Witherington, he put it this way, Christians are to address these songs surprisingly enough to each other rather than just to God. They are to speak to one another in songs of praise. This makes sense. This makes it clear that worship is not just a matter of adoration, but it also involves edification. One of the spiritual practices we utilize each week is singing, but it's not just vertically to God, but singing horizontally to and over one another. Remember that your singing is not just for you or even just for God. So don't show up late. Actually, don't show up late. Your singing is not just for you. It's a gift for your sibling in the room. When you come late, you're actually not just like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm gonna feel the song today. Have we done it a lot? Like, it's not about that. I don't need it. Like, it's cool. I love Jesus and I can sing. The thing is, you don't know the person next to you might need it. Singing is actually a gift to build one another up. An evidence of the Spirit filling your life is how we speak and sing to each other. Another is singing and making music from our heart to the Lord. I didn't make this up. This isn't because I'm the worship guy. Like, this is the scripture. Singing and making music from our heart to the Lord. The way we speak internally should be like a song of praise flowing from our hearts. Singing, speaking, then thanking God in everything. The way we speak to God is with thanks in everything. Knowing that happiness may actually come from gratitude instead of grasping. The last evidence of the Spirit filling your life is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is Tyler's problem to deal with next week. <laughs> the point is, be filled by the Spirit. Paul lays out the trap we all face. We must no longer live as the world, but as a new humanity. Or in the Christian Dawson paraphrase, you must not live any longer as the Portlanders do in the futility of their thinking. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the invitation that sums up everything we've talked about today, to be holy. It's not to be better than another person. It's so much more compelling. To be holy is to be more of who you truly are, more of who God made you to be. To be holy is to be set apart to God and for God and for good works that God has up to in the world. We aren't just trying to like push sin down or like we're, we are, we're actually, what we're doing is we're training ourselves in a whole new way to be human. We aren't just trying to suppress the bad behavior or to just say no to a list of sins. This is an invitation to a better yes to reorder our loves and desires, to love God and his kingdom and his people more than anything else, even more than ourselves. And this is actually what will fulfill our deepest longings. This is the better yes, to be holy, to become people like Jesus, a people of self-giving, sacrificial, other-centered love, or in the words of Paul, to put on the new humanity. Because again, this is not just individual we are called to be a holy people. And could you imagine if we became this? Like, actually, like, we didn't just preach about it. It didn't just feel like a good sermon. But if we, as the Church of Portland, were a community who lived and interacted with one another in a totally different way, if we were known by our love for one another, 
if there was no hiding or deception, if we were so sacrificial that no one was needy, if we were kind and compassionate and radically forgiving, if we lived into the dignity and beauty of Jesus's vision for sexuality, if we released the attachments and idols that tripped us up and then discovered that we were happy when we were holy. Could you imagine if we were a totally new humanity? We become this by our little decisions, habits, and practices, rehabituating and reordering our hearts and lives to become people who are steered away from eagle, ego, idols, attachments, and self to become a people of love, a people with a better yes, people who are like Jesus, and a people like Jesus.